Okay, if you have your Bible, would you open to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. Yes, I know this is our first Sunday in Exodus, and we're starting in chapter 3, but there's a reason. And so would you, once you get there, stand with me, and we will read together. Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, reading through verse 15. One, two, three, read. This is the word of the Lord. God, this morning as we come to your word, we rejoice that you have made yourself known. Lord, your word tells us that it is in you we live and we move and we have our being. It is because of you we have our very existence. Your word tells us, Lord, that creation testifies to who you are. And yet, Lord, with all of those things, we have somewhat subjective knowledge. And yet, here in your word, you have gifted us with truth so that we can know you. And so this morning, as we enter your word, as we start this series in the book of Exodus, God, that is our prayer, that we would grow in our knowledge of you and that we would then boast that we know you, Lord. You tell us that we can boast in your glory, Lord, in your renown, in who you are. And so we pray this morning as we grow in our knowledge and these coming months as we grow in our knowledge of you, that you would give us reason to boast because we know God. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And today is our first Sunday of what will be many Sundays in the book of Exodus. Um, Today we're going to begin to work our way through this book. We're going to spend about eight months, I think, in total in this book. Four months in the spring, four months in the fall. And today, because of that, because of that large body of work that is Exodus, this sermon is going to look a little different. We need some introductory work. Um, Maybe if you're unfamiliar with introductions, um, writing them is one thing, but just being introduced to someone is another. If you walk up to someone and you say, hi, my name is, enter your name in the blank, that tells you a little bit about them, but you need more backstory in order to understand them. So if the book of Exodus were to walk in the room and say, hi, my name is Exodus, you'd say, that's a weird name. And then you'd probably have some feelings about a talking book, and then you'd ask for a little bit more backstory, a little more context. So today's going to look a little different. We're not going to dive deeply into a text, and so maybe you're here in Exodus 3 and you're like, Austin, there's so much more around what he just said 
Uh, why aren't you getting into that? Because I'll get into that in a few weeks when we get back to Exodus 3. But today, we need to get a few things in order so that we can get the most out of this book. And so maybe you came in here this morning and you're a little bit disturbed to find out that we would spend eight months preaching through a book of the Bible. Like, why wouldn't you just do a series on marriage? Or why wouldn't you do a series on something else that seems more important to our cultural moment? Why would you go back uh, thousands of years to a book that was written that has some interesting passages in it, like, don't boil a young goat in her mother's milk? Why would you go there? Uh, to, to teach for eight months in the life of our church? Well, to answer that question, I'm going to have to ask you a question. And that question is, who is God? I want you to spend a moment and just think about how you'd answer that question. And after you've thought about your answer, I want you to think about how your coworkers might answer that question. You may get a variety of answers from a variety of different religions or no religion at all. You may get something like God is a social construct or you may get something like, well, God is certainly something, but I just don't think anyone can be confident in who he is. I want you to think about if you were to ask your family, who is God? What answers would you hear? I asked my son in preparation for this, and he said, Daddy, you know. I'm like, well, but I'm asking you. <laughs> I'm asking you to tell me. He's like, you do it. Oh, okay. I want you to now think, if you were to go to the most powerful man in the world, and you were to ask him that question, who is God? What do you think he'd say? My guess is, my guess, this isn't like statistical fact or anything like that. This is just my guess from conversations I've had. That in most of those places, you're going to get a very subjective answer. And that answer is going to be based on a lived experience. And so the answer someone might give you could sound something like this. Well, to me, God is. And then they say their answer but there's a, there's a problem with that. You see, I, I have subjective knowledge of a lot of people, right? Like, uh, I know the guy who cut me off on the freeway the other day seems like a bit of a jerk. And I also know that the woman who bagged my groceries this morning, she seemed quite pleasant. She seemed very nice. This subjective knowledge, it's based on my lived experience in that moment. What I was able to interpret based on what happened to me in that moment. The guy who cut me off on the freeway could be a man of integrity who was rushing his wife to the hospital as she's about to give birth to her baby. And the woman who checked my groceries could have gone home after work and verbally abused her children. My knowledge was subjective and was limited. My subjective knowledge does not tell me these things, but I do have a form of knowledge about them. Many of us relate to God based on our subjective knowledge of Him. Ask anyone you meet, who is God? Who is God? And often they will give you some form of answer based on their lived experience 
or the conclusions about God they've come to on their own. And so my question then becomes, is that enough? Is lived experience enough? Are subjective lived experiences enough for us to be confident about who God is? No, they aren't. And enter stage left, the book of Exodus. A book where God makes himself known. You see, God, as in his gracious mercy, condescended to communicate with humanity in a language we can understand so that we might know God. Why preach through Exodus? Why preach through Exodus? So that we might know God. What we find in the pages of Exodus are the very words of the God of the universe, and this conviction deeply shapes and forms the life of our church because of that conviction that God has come to speak to us today through His Word. We will spend and take very seriously all the pages of this book. Knowing that the Word of God, it is living and it is active and that the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to get His work done in the church. You see, the people of God, which is you and me, we need the Word of God because in these pages, we can know objectively what God is like and how He operates throughout human history. God wants us to know Him. And the book of Exodus is after that in your life and in the life of human history that we would know who God is. I want us to think about that for a second. The story of the Bible is that God created the world and it was good and he created humanity to know him and to live in communion with him. God wants us to know him. He wants to be known, not subjectively, but objectively based on who he is. The second reason why we would preach through the book of Exodus is that this is our family story. If you are a Christian in this room, this is your history. The book of Exodus is your history and we are a people that is shaped by Exodus. Here's what I mean by that. There's two words that mark the book of Exodus and that mark our lives as Christians today. Deliverance. God delivers his people and dwelling. God dwells with his people. And that is the story of Exodus. The, the first section of scripture is about God delivering his people from slavery in Egypt. And then the back half of the book is about God making a way to dwell with them. And that's your story if you are a Christian in this room that God has delivered you from bondage. And he is after eternity with you dwelling with you forever. Exodus is our story. We're a people shaped by Exodus. And because of that, because of that knowledge that this is kind of the story that God is after, God delivers in order to dwell, Exodus becomes a foundational book to the Bible. It becomes a foundational book to the gospel. It becomes foundational to the Christian life. We cannot hope to understand what God is up to without understanding the book of Exodus. 
I mean, even what we're doing when we take the Lord's table is rooted in the book of Exodus. What we're doing when we sing songs is rooted in the book of Exodus. Why we proclaim the word of God over the people of God Sunday after Sunday is rooted in the book of Exodus. The purpose for your life in light of the good news of Christ, is rooted in the book of Exodus. The reason why we celebrate the cross of Christ and the atonement of God's blood where he makes a way for us to come into relationship with him, it's rooted in the book of Exodus. All of that, foundational to the Christian life, is this book. We learn about God in this book. We learn about God and His glory. We learn about why He saves. We learn about how He saves. We learn about what is necessary to provide freedom. And we're even going to learn about what true freedom is. You see, in Exodus, freedom from is bound up with freedom to. When we are freed from something, we are now free to serve something else. Or in the words of Paul, we were once slaves to sin but now slaves to righteousness, freed from something to something, delivered in order to dwell. And the final reason why I would say that we preach through Exodus is because it's amazing. I mean, there is a reason why Hollywood has thought, you know, we should do movies about this. And let's just be honest, like DreamWorks Prince of Egypt is a masterpiece. They get some stuff wrong but that soundtrack still, it's, I sent Davey and Luke a playlist. We're trying to like pray through songs that we'd want to add into the life of our church. And I put Deliver Us from that soundtrack in there. We're not going to play it here, but it's still so good. <laughs> Every once in a while I'll be like sitting working on Exodus and I turn on the Exodus songs playlist and that one comes in. I'm like, that's it. We're just going to watch the movie. Every, I'm just kidding. We would never allow Hollywood to tell us what to think about God. But Exodus, it's just an amazing book. I mean, we've got slavery to freedom. We've got wicked kings. We've got chaos to order, suffering to salvation, uh, sojourners to sons and daughters. There's plagues. There's the God of Israel versus the gods of Egypt. It's an epic story, an epic story that invites us to know God as he makes himself known. Why would we preach this book? Because God has some stuff for us in it. Because God wants to make himself known to us, objectively. Because this is our family story, because it's foundational to our lives as Christians, and because it is an amazing book. But in order to preach this story well, we have to put it in context of the bigger story it is a part of. Um, many of you, maybe you grew up, and you had a view of the Bible, like myself, where the Bible was a moral handbook. So you kind of treated it more like a textbook to get the right answers for life. And at the end of the class, you were like, all right, cool, I can put that back up. I got the answers on the test right. Pick it back up if I ever have to do trigonometry again. I've never done trigonometry, so you're, you're yeah. But that's how the Bible was. It was a, it was a handbook, a textbook, a moral uh, answer to life. And don't get me wrong, God does have a moral vision for our lives, and we have to grab hold of that moral vision, but we have to put that moral vision in the proper context. God is after some things. There's a lot of laws in the book of Exodus. There's a lot of laws in the Bible. There's a lot of morals that you and I should hold tightly to, and yet those only make sense in the proper context. 
They only make sense in the proper context. And they make sense in the context of the Bible being a story. The Bible is first and foremost a story about God. And the book of Exodus shows up as a part of that story. And we can't hope to understand it unless we understand the story. Unless we understand what's been going on. I'm indebted to Von Roberts' organizing principles here because this is just going to make our time overviewing Genesis easier. But in Genesis, the story begins. God creates all things, including humanity, and it is very good. And God's intention for humanity was to glorify Him by enjoying Him forever and spreading His happy rule throughout the whole world, throughout all of creation. Ruling and subduing is the language. It's kingly language. Enjoy His rule and spread His rule. But, as many of us are familiar with, mankind pushes against God's rule. Rejecting Him as God, asserting themselves as the lords of their life, and they fall. They are removed from God's presence, but not without hope. You see, in Genesis 3, as God is pronouncing judgment, He's also pronouncing promise. That one day, He's going to undo the work that's been done through a son. He's going to rescue through a son. And then we get into Genesis 4 through 11 and it goes from bad to worse. It shows the world under humanity's rule outside of God's wisdom, sin and death spread throughout all of creation and the effects are devastating. Relationships between men and women are broken. The relationship between humanity and God is broken. The relationship between humanity and creation is broken. The perfect creation now division, now destruction, now death, and everywhere as a result. And so God reigns still. He's not out of control, but now His reign is in judgment. We see that in Genesis chapters 5 and 6 as God judges a people and God sends a flood which wipes out the whole earth and it's a miracle he saved any it's a miracle he saved any we see that in genesis 11 where the people gather together to make a name for themselves and god scatters the people saying no it's not about your glory you live in light of just making a name about you it's going to be the wrong way to live it's going to lead to more death more division more destruction and the perfect creation that God had promised, the perfect creation that God had established is now nothing but a distant dream. The pattern of the kingdom has been destroyed by sin. Human beings are no longer God's people by nature. They have turned away from Him. And now because of human sin, we no longer live in God's place where God dwells. We've been banished from God's presence. And we reject His rule and we live life as if we ruled the world, but God continues to reign. And His reign is present all throughout the beginning of Genesis, but His reign is one of judgment. As a result, humanity does not enjoy God's blessing and the blessing of living under His happy rule, but instead face His curse and it's heartbreaking. A perfect world is destroyed by human rebellion. 
And all throughout that story, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, while human sin is met by God's judgment, there's also great mercy. Throughout the story, God provides glimmers of hope that one day all of this will be reversed. All of this will be undone. A son will crush the head of Satan. He will do away with the wicked powers that would seek to tempt God's people away from God. In, in the story, a family escapes God's judgment through the ark of God's provision. You see, throughout the story, we're seeing judgment, but glimmers of hope. God's doing something. God's on the move. And then comes Genesis 12. The darkest point in human history, it seems. Humanity scattered. No one knows God. No one knows one another. And God shows up and he grabs a man named Abraham. And through Abraham... God is going to bless the nations. In our text today, in Exodus 3, verse 15, you'll notice that it says, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. So you see, this God in Exodus is the same God that shows up in Genesis 12. This God in Exodus is the same God who's doing something in Genesis 12. He declares to Abraham his intention to bring the scattered people of the world back and to bless them again. And the focus of Genesis 12 all the way to Exodus 18 is on how God fulfills his promise to Abraham. Our story in Exodus 3 is rooted in Genesis 12. God promises to Abraham that his descendants will be a great nation. He promises to make the nation of Israel his people. He promises that he will be their God, but that promise does not happen smoothly. There are problems at every turn. The first problem is God promises Abraham, I will give you a son, and Abraham says, that's amazing. My wife is barren. My wife can't have kids. Abraham is in the process of learning that if the good news of God's promises, if the gospel is going to be fulfilled, only God can bring it about. It's not going to be human effort. The years continue to pass and it seems like nothing's happening, but one day God speaks to Abraham and he reassures him that Sarah will bear a son and it happens. At last, the gospel train is beginning to move forward. The, the promise that God will bless the nations through the offspring of Abraham, that God will bring a reversal to the curse, is happening. There's a long way to go before that train reaches its destination in Christ, but the journey has begun in Genesis. As Abraham's life goes, he grows old and he dies, and the future promise now focuses on his son Isaac. Isaac has a fairly short narrative in the story, but he marries a woman named Rebekah, and they have two sons, and those sons are named Jacob and Esau. And Jacob and Esau is a fascinating story. You see, Esau is the oldest, and he would have been the one that, according to culture, should have received the promised blessing that God gave to Abraham, that passed on to Isaac. It should have passed on to Esau. And yet, it's Jacob, the younger, who receives God's blessing. And what's even crazier is the way that he receives God's blessing is through deceptive, sinful tactics, which is just a fascinating story. 
Don't you receive God's blessing by doing good things? And then you got Jacob that shows up in like the first 30 chapters of the Bible, and he's like, hi, I'm a terrible person, and God's like, blessing. <laughs> what? That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Unless, of course, that's your story as well. You see, God, Scripture indicates that God's choice was Jacob over Esau, which is a crazy thing because we read the story and it's Jacob's sin that leaves, leads to him being blessed. And yet, Scripture never indicates that God is out of control. Never indicates that that was an accident. Never indicates that he meant Esau, but, you know, Jacob kind of weaseled his way in and God was just stuck with human, human error. That's never how the Scripture talks about it. You see, not even human sin can thwart God's plans. Why did God choose Jacob? If we're reading the story of Genesis, Jacob is a really terrible person. Um, he's just not a fun guy at all. So you've got Esau, who's the strong masculine hunter. His name literally means red because he was born with hair all over his body. I mean, he is the Old Spice commercial guy. If you don't get that reference... <laughs> Sunday, Super Bowl Sunday is coming. I'm sure there'll be something. And it'll be a manly man promoting Old Spice. And this is Esau. He's the man riding on a horse with a sword in his hand. He's just, he's out hunting. And then you've got Jacob and he's at home making soup. And you're like, all right, well, I guess, you know, that's, you could still be a man and make soup, right? Like I love to cook personally. But Jacob is also like, anytime something happens, he's like, let me go run to my mom. Like, <laughs> And you're like, okay, maybe a guy who anytime he gets into a conflict goes to his mom is problematic, uh, and then he's at home making soup, and yeah, like maybe, and he's deceptive, he's a liar on top of that. Maybe this isn't the guy. Maybe this isn't the one. But yet, for some reason, God chooses this one, the younger son with unpleasant character. His name, Jacob, literally means heel grabber or deceiver, which is just a fascinating identity for someone. We... I don't know, what should we call our son? Probably liar. Yeah, that's a good one. Like, like liar, liar, pants on fire. There we go, that's his name. Like, what, an in, what a fascinating story that it's, this is the one God chooses. This is the one. He's still sinful. He still acts in deceit to get the promise and to get the blessing, and yet, he is the one God chooses. God does not choose people based on merit. Oh man, none of us will ever deserve to belong to him. None of us. If we are Christians today, that story of Jacob should feel incredibly humbling to us. It is not because we're better than anyone or anything in us that God thought was worth having on the team. He didn't look at Jacob instead of Esau and he thought, you know what, Jacob's going to do a lot more for the kingdom than Esau. Jacob is way more impressive. If I had to pit the two of them in a fight, probably going to choose Jacob. No, actually, the way that Jacob fights throughout the rest of the story is to run. It's just, he's not the choice. And yet he's God's choice because it's not about human effort. It's not about strength. It's not about merit. It's not about how worthy you were of God. God does not choose people based on merit. It is simply, like this is our testimony. This was Jacob's testimony. This is your testimony today because God chose to set his loving care on us. Nothing else it is simply because God chose to set his loving care on this. God is going to say this to the people of Egypt in Exodus. He is going to tell them, it's not because you were more impressive than the nations that I drew you out. 
In fact, it's because you were small and unimpressive that I drew you out. Welcome to the kingdom. You're small and unimpressive. God is not. You see, there's, some, there's something for us there. Why does God do the things that He does? For His own glory. So that you might be a vessel to glorify the living God. Not so that you would be a vessel for your own glory and your own awesomeness. Maybe let me put it this way, because Super Bowl Sunday's next week. Maybe this is just great. If you had to look at the, the, like, look, guys, I know that not everybody in here is a guy, but it's Super Bowl, and I feel like maybe that will transfer. Like, we can all get this. Super Bowl is the two best teams of the year, the teams that played the best throughout the year in the NFL. It would be like if you had the two best teams, and then you had the worst team in the NFL, and God was like, all right, uh, I'm going to choose the worst team. That's, those are my guys right there. And you and I would be like, no, I'm sorry, man. I think that I'm going to choose the team that's won the whole year. I think I'm going to choose the team that has a better chance of winning the Super Bowl. And God's like, no, it's okay. I got these guys. These guys who probably aren't even worth being professional football players. Like, that's, those are mine. That's insane. It doesn't make any sense. And yet, that's you and I. What good news? What good news? Because at the end of that game, people would not say, wow, the players really put on a show. They'd say the coach did something. That's what we get to say. Man, it wasn't the players. It was the one orchestrating it all. Anyway, that was a sidetrack. I didn't have that in my notes, but here we go. And so if you're like, that didn't make any sense, Austin, that's because I didn't think about it. I didn't premeditate on that at all. And so you're welcome. Um, so Jacob is this weak soup-eating guy who God ends up choosing. Um, God chooses Jacob, and Jacob then has 12 sons. And they, uh, no surprise, are very similar in character to their father. So they are deceptive. They are deceit. Like, they are just, they're a real fun group of kids. And while that sounds like a big fa messy family, it's certainly not a great nation, Right? A nation full of mess-ups and a, a nation full of deceivers is what we have so far. It's a big family of deceivers. And yet, in the beginning of these 12 kids, we're beginning to see the seeds of God's promises being fulfilled. He's going to bring about a great nation through the line of Abraham, then through the line of Isaac, through the line of Jacob. Just, uh, Jacob has 12 kids, and one of those kids is named Joseph. And because you would expect this from a sinful man like Jacob, he does play favorites in his family. And so Joseph is his favorite. He loves Joseph, and he is not quiet about it at all. I mean, literally, he's got all 12 of his sons there, and he's like, you know what, Joseph, I just loved you so much that I got you a gift. Your brothers, they can go do the work, but I want you to have this really nice coat his friends, are, the brothers are like, man, we're outside all day tending the sheep. And he's like, don't worry, I, Joseph, I got you this coat. I know you're inside most of the day. I know you're not there doing all the hard labor, but I wanted you to be the one that was comfortable. Can you imagine like that type of family dynamic with a father and his children? Maybe you can. I'm sorry if that's your story. God can still use it. So anyway, uh, Joseph becomes his family, uh, the, the favorite, and naturally his brothers are a little bit perturbed by this, and so they say, let's sell him into slavery, because that's what healthy families do. And so um, they sell him into slavery, they tell their dad, is de they tell their dad look, Joseph's dead, because um, they're a bunch of deceivers, 
And that's just typical sibling rivalry. So Joseph ends up in Egypt. And while he's experiencing favor in Egypt, he is soon sent to jail for a crime that he doesn't commit. So now we have this interesting thing happening in the story. I want you to pay attention to the fascinating thing that's happened in the story so far. Uh, we have Jacob, who is a deceitful, messed up sinner. And he's the one that God chooses, and his life seems to go fairly smoothly by the end of it. And then you have Joseph, who is the blameless and innocent one, who ends up unfairly punished for his sins. For a, for a crime that he didn't commit. It's a fascinating story. There's fascinating things happening in the book of Genesis. The contrasts are amazing. So Joseph, he ends up in Egypt. He's soon in jail for a crime he doesn't commit. And you and I, at this point in the story, if we're reading along, we should be asking a question. Is God really in control? Like, really? The wicked one prospers? The righteous one in jail? This doesn't make any sense. This doesn't make any sense. It would seem in Joseph's story that there's very little evidence of God being in control in the beginning. But God knows what he's doing. You see, if Joseph had not been in jail, he would not have met a cupbearer who was also in jail. And that cupbearer is going to end up being elevated to his position back next to the king of Egypt. And he's going to tell the king of Egypt about this Joseph guy who has this weird ability to interpret dreams. One day, this king of Egypt, Pharaoh is his name, he's going to have a crazy dream. And he's going to say, I got to have this Joseph guy come interpret this dream. And Joseph comes and he interprets the dream Warning of a coming famine when no food will be available for people. And Joseph's released. Because of his wisdom and because of his demeanor, he now is put in a position as the assistant to the regional manager of all of Egypt. I'm so glad I got some laughs from that, guys. That's an office joke. Um, anyway, he leads well. He protects the entire country from famine. And then... We get this story cut. So here's Joseph over in Egypt prospering. And then we see Jacob and his other sons. Their land is ravaged by famine. They are out of food. They've got to do something. They hear about the land of Egypt. The land of Egypt seems to be prospering. So we got to go there to get food. So they go to Egypt. And the Famine threatens to kill them, which means end, end to the hope of the gospel being fulfilled. They go to Egypt to buy food, and they come face to face with the brother who they sold into slavery. And Joseph responds like this. In Genesis 50, verses 19 to 20, you can tell we're getting close to Exodus. He says, Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, my brothers, who sold me into slavery, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, Joseph knew something that you and I need to know before we get to the book of Exodus, that God has not lost control, that God has not lost control. 
He's been in control all along, even in moments when we can't seem to see it. God is in control. He's seen to it that Joseph is in Egypt, has risen to a high office so that he can be in a position to help when his brothers come. And as a result, the people of God are preserved instead of wiped out by famine. See, it didn't make any sense while it was happening. But at the end of it, on the other side, Joseph was able to proclaim something. You meant it for evil. You were sinners in this. But God's using it. God meant it for good. You see, God always works to ensure that his gospel promises are protected. Always. He's seen to it that Joseph is in Egypt and has risen to a high office. He's made sure that God's people are preserved. And we may not always be able to understand why or how God does the things he does. We may feel like there were easier ways in which God could have protected his people in Joseph's day. But even when we do not understand God's purposes, we can be sure that they are loving ones. And that they are always guaranteeing His glory, always guaranteeing His promises, always guaranteeing our good. You see, we need that before we get to Exodus because it's the move that God's people make to survive that leads to 400 years of harsh slavery. And in the beginning of the story, you and I would be tempted to ask, is God in control? And Genesis 50 comes up and says, he knows what he's doing. Hold on to that as you get into this next story. See, nothing, whether the devil, human sin and wickedness, terrible famine, or anything else can prevent God from fulfilling his gospel promises to his people. Man, that alone could preach for us today. If you are a Christian, God has made some promises to you. God has made promises to you that you might not see in your life right now. God has promised to give you future. God has promised to give you hope. God has promised to dwell with you forever. And you may be in a moment where you just are like, man, where are you, God? I can't see you. I don't know where you are. But God always works. God always preserves. You see, a story like Exodus is a story to remind you and I that even if we don't see what God's doing for a long period of time, it doesn't mean he's not doing something. And he will always keep his promises. Always. So Jacob and his family, they moved to Egypt to be with Joseph, to settle there. And at the beginning of Exodus, they've multiplied greatly. Their descendants are then enslaved and oppressed by their hosts. Now I want you to think about this. This in the beginning of, Genesis, in the beginning of Exodus, which we'll preach next week. They are multiplying greatly like a great nation would. And it's God's fulfillment of promises that leads to oppression for them. It's crazy. The Bible is an amazing story. And so because of their multiplication, because of the promise to God being fulfilled in them, they end up descendant, their, their descendants are enslaved, they're oppressed by Egypt, and God must set them free if they are to be his people as he promised. Through the long years of slavery, they're probably wondering if God's forgotten his promise. But God cannot forget. He cannot forget. In our passage, in Exodus 3 today, God tells Moses, 
to go to Pharaoh, to demand the release of the people, and he makes himself known with these words. I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. I am who I am. He reveals himself with these words, I am who I am, or I will be what I will be. Who is God? He is who he is. He will be who he will be. God strangely introduces himself. Somebody, man, again, somebody walks up to you and you say, hey, I'm Austin, and not whatever your name is, but in the, in the blank. They say, I am who I am. You're like, okay, you're weird, man. Why would, you, why would you do that to me? But God, in this identification of himself, he seems to be telling us that no one can encapsulate his character. I am who I am. I couldn't give you words to describe who I am. I am who I am. If we want to know who God is... We must watch him act in history on behalf of his people. Do you want to know who God is? Then watch and see what he does in delivering his people, and then you will know who he is. See, the Bible does not just tell us the story of God's work of salvation. It's telling us the story of God's character. Why does God deliver his people? Not because of anything in them, but because he's made some promises to, him, to them. Why does God deliver his people? Because he is who he is. His salvation is not rooted in his people's merit. His salvation is rooted in his own character, in his very being. It's telling us the story of God's character. He is the hero of this story from beginning to end. And Exodus is going to come into the middle of this grand narrative of the Bible and tell us something about God. It's going to tell us that God's people are delivered not for their own glory. God's people are delivered for God's glory. God's people are delivered for God's glory because this is who God is. But the story doesn't end there. God's people are delivered for God's glory to dwell in God's presence forever. God's people delivered for God's glory. The first part of Exodus is going to tell us about a God who delivers his people and it's going to give us, going to give us a reason for his deliverance. And that reason is for his glory. Exodus chapter 14, as God is about to part the Red Sea, this is the words that he used. Now you will see that I will get glory over Pharaoh. Why does God deliver? For his glory. For his glory. But then why does God deliver in part two? 
so that his people will dwell with him. You see, the second half of the book, it's, it's a reversal. God's people had gone from being apart from him, separated from God, and at the end of the book, there's instructions given for them to make a place for God's presence with them. You see, in the beginning of the story of Exodus, God is unknown and God then makes himself known. He makes himself known to his people as a promise-keeping God who delivers his people and he makes himself known to Egypt as God above all the supposed gods in Egypt and as judge of their wicked oppression for his people. You see, God delivers his people and Hollywood says, all right, cut, wrap up production. But the director says, no, this isn't over. This isn't over. You see, we got them out of Egypt, but we still need to get Egypt out of them. This is what it looks like to be a part of God's family. The world is now going to know through God's people what God is like. The world will now understand God's heart and God's values by the way His people live. This is the purpose of the law in the Old Testament. God's motive in delivering is for His renown, for His glory. God is going to bring a people out and they will be His people. They will become a kingdom of priests. They are called to give the glory of God to the nations so that they would see who God is, so that they would know who God is. I've got to turn to Exodus 15 to do this for us, to help us see this. It's a fascinating story. Exodus 15, they've been delivered from Egypt. They're singing on the other side of that. And this is what it says in verse 11. And then we'll read down. Who is like you, O Lord, among the, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. That's a better translation. The nations have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. These are all nations surrounding Egypt and surrounding the place where Israel will go. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you purchased. Now, I want you to notice something. God's deliverance doesn't just say something to God's people about who he is. It says something to the nations about who he is. God's deliverance is for God's glory. God saves because of who he is. The motive is so that the world will understand God's heart, so that the world will understand God's, God, God's values. God's motive in delivering is for his renown, for his glory, and I know you like like we love John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever would believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And yet the reason for God's deliverance is primarily so that he would be glorified. And that's what Exodus is gonna teach us. So that he would get the glory. God saves not because of who we are. God saves because of who he is. God redeems and delivers because of his character. Not because of anything in us but because of something in him. And he's going to draw a people out so that they will live in light of his glory and for his glory. But this shouldn't come as a surprise. They're going to fail. 
You see in Exodus chapter 32, they're going to get impatient waiting for God to reveal himself, waiting for God to make known what he'd like for them to do. And so they are going to make a God in their own image. Well, that's problematic because they still have Egypt inside of them. And God will not be defined by their subjective definitions of him and he will not be defined by our subjective definitions of him. There's also a secondary reason. You see, God delivers his people and he delivers his people because the way he will get the most glory is by reversing the effects of human sin, by bringing his people back in. You know how we know that nothing can thwart the plans of the Lord? Because he's going to undo the effects of human sin by bringing his people back into his presence again. Healing the fractured relationships of sin. Healing the broken relationships of men and women. Healing the broken relationships of humanity and God. Healing the broken relationship between humanity and creation. God's about that work. He delivers for his glory so that we might dwell in his presence because it's in that work of reversing the fall that he gets the most glory. He's going to bring about a reversal to all the brokenness. And so the back half of the book of Exodus, it's going to deal with the construction of something called the tabernacle, the place where God will dwell among his people. They finish the work at the end of the book, and it's this fascinating statement. We'll go ahead and go there. Exodus 34. I'm almost in my seat, I promise. Not Exodus 34. Exodus 40, sorry. Exodus 40, 40 verse 34. It says this. Then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The Lord is with us and yet he's not. He's not with us. See, they finish the work. The glory of God falls on the tabernacle where God will dwell with his people again. And Moses, the guy who has represented God to his people through his leadership and intercession, he can't even go into God's presence. It kind of ends on a down note, doesn't it? Like, God is doing this work to deliver in order to dwell, and yet God's people can't dwell with him. God can't dwell with his people. You see, in a sense, Exodus is unfinished. But it points us to an important aspect of God's character. And that aspect is that God will do this work. God will dwell with his people again. His people will not obtain this dwelling. His people won't accomplish God's presence by their obedience to the law. No, God's going to have to come to them. So we get John, chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and tabernacled among them. He dwelt among them, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son for the, from the Father, 
God is in the business of making himself known so much so that he sends Jesus in the flesh. And this is what the Bible tells us about Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. Who is God? We don't know. No one's ever seen him. The only God who is at the Father's side. But when we look to Jesus, he has made him known. God is in the business of making his people known. No one has ever seen God, but he has made him known. He shows God's heart perfectly. He lives in the way God intends, reflecting God's heart to the world. And in his crowning achievement, he's given a crown of thorns as he substitutes himself to deliver God's people, not just from the external evil of death and the devil, but to rid them of the internal war they're waging against sin. God's people now ransomed, redeemed, rescued, are given a way forward to promote the glory of God to the world and to dwell with him forever. And that's how the story ends in Revelation 21.3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be, any more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is how the story ends. That God delivers his people so that they might dwell with him forever. And Exodus is pointing us towards a greater reality. That God delivers so that we might dwell here in the book of Exodus as we'll spend eight months and I'm going to do my best to not preach for 52 minutes for those eight months God makes himself known God makes himself known objectively and he invites us to set aside our preconceived ideas about who God is and to take him at his word he is who he is he makes himself known for his glory so that we might dwell with him forever. Who is God? He will be what he will be. He is who he is. And through the pages of Exodus, we're invited to know him as he introduces himself to us. I'm excited to be in this book together. Let's pray. God, we recognize that there's so much more to be said and so we look forward to these coming months together in this book where we get to know you. Lord, we pray that if there are those in this room who don't know you, that you would reveal yourself to them through this book, this word. God, speak to us, we ask. Thank you. Thank you for making yourself known.